This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. Hey there, I'm Casey Finey, host of Creative Control, and we're actually in production for season two of the podcast. So while we're hard at work bringing you more of the people and trends shaping the creator economy, please enjoy this throwback episode. Soman Chinani is the best-selling author of The School for Good and Evil, which Netflix actually adapted into a show that premieres this October. In this episode, Soman explains his alt-walt vision, that is to say, creating fairy tales darker and more complex than the sanitized world of Walt Disney, and why that's not only good for his creativity, but for the kids he's writing for. I'm always challenging everybody to break the rules a little bit, you know, because Books are fighting an uphill challenge, you know? Kids have video games, TikTok, YouTube, and everything. we got to make it sexy again. And the only way we're going to do that is to make it feel renegade. And so every one of my books has to feel like it's pushing and it's, it's making kids feel like they're in on a secret. I'm your host, Casey Finey, and this is Creative Conversation, a Fast Company podcast. Soma Janani is a best-selling author who's on a mission to revolutionize the young adult space. His wildly popular series, The School for Good and Evil, and his latest novel, Beasts and Beauty, both subvert conventional fairy tales for something darker and more complex. Soman isn't looking to create the sanitized world of Walt Disney. He wants to bring back the real lessons embedded in Grimm's fairy tales, but with a modern twist. In our conversation, Soman explains his alt-walt vision and why it's not only good for his creativity, but for the kids he's writing for. Welcome to the podcast, Soman. Thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. This is a, this is a real treat. Ah, oh, the treat for me because you know I love your work, and I kind of we're definitely going to dive into it. But I want to start with you know I know that you graduated from Harvard with a degree in English and American Lit, and then you went to Columbia and you got your MFA in film, and so clearly you were destined to be a storyteller of some kind. But where does that connection with storytelling begin for you? You know, my dad used to tell me when I was young, my nickname at six and seven was America's storyteller. <laughs> <laughs> he just felt like I, there was no straight line to anything that happened. Where's your lunchbox? A pterodactyl took it. How did a pterodactyl take it? You know what I mean? Like everything was a story. Everything was drama. Everything was, you know, there was something going on. I just love stories. And to this day, nothing in the world, nothing gives me greater pleasure than being surprised by a story. That's what turns me on. That's what gets me excited is I look for something that is unusual and has some kind of structural twist that makes me feel alive or awake. Right. And so what was that for you as a kid? You know, I think I sort of got away from, you know, the typical kids' books and really fell in love with Roald Dahl quite early because I felt like his books were mm -hmm. so renegade and subversive. Um, and after I read his books, I felt like nothing else worked. Like, they spoiled me for all other books. And then I discovered Anne Rice. And Anne Rice and Roald Dahl are quite similar in that they're both flamethrowers, they're both provocateurs, and especially her early work. I've never heard someone compare Anne Rice and Roald Dahl. <laughs> they're so oddly similar. They both gravitate towards 
this kind of sensuality of language and mm. visceralness of language, but for different audiences, you know? And I think if you look at my writing, it really is oddly a combination of the two. Mm. And I asked specifically, you know, what was that for you as a kid? Because I know that your, you know, your series, The School for Good and Evil, has been just a massive hit, both in book sales and with the upcoming adaptation for Netflix as a film. And so, you know, for those who are who may be unfamiliar, I mean, walk us through the premise of the series and how you landed there. Yeah, and it's funny because it came with my fascination with Disney growing up. Like, I was raised on Disney stories. Like, my family, we didn't have Nintendo, Netflix, video games, all the stuff that kids have today. We had Disney movies, all 45 animated movies at my house. And I just watched them 24-7. I knew every movie, every frame, every line. I was a Disney child. And I think that whole universe of Disney, the way that they built the world and this sort of empire based on fairy tales... I think seated in my head to some degree, I wanted to work for them. Mm. I wanted to be the architect of a fairy tale empire. And I tried to work for Disney, in fact, when I was 21, coming out of college and didn't get the job. And if I had got that job, I think my life would have been completely different. Yeah. <laughs> but then I learned the real versions of the stories, mm -hmm. the, the grim stories in college. And I started to realize that my childhood, in a lot of ways, was based on a lie. And that these Disney fairy tales teach the opposite of what the original fairy tales taught. The original fairy tales taught that sometimes good wins, sometimes evil wins. Both sides are aware of each other, but you don't actually identify with good or evil. You have to be a little bit of both in order to slide your way through life, mm. in order to be clever enough to survive. And there's an understanding that sometimes good will win, sometimes evil will win, but the exchange, the balance is what makes the world work. Disney changed it so that there was a clear good guy and evil guy, and good guy always wins no matter what. Even in the case where the good guy is clearly the villain, like the Little Mermaid, right? Mm -hmm. In the original Little Mermaid, Ariel dies because she's the villain. And in the Disney version, of course, she gets a prince at the end. And I started to think that that is a corrupting influence, the idea that you're either good or evil and you're on one side. And I think it infects everything in this country. I think it infects everything up to our politics, you know, because you identify with something and you are something and therefore you're on the side of righteousness or you're not. And that's not what the original fairy tales taught us. And so I think that seeded in my head that so many kids like me were growing up with Disney-fied values when the true fairy tales taught something very different. And I started, I think that's where the seed of an alternative fairy tale universe started to plant in its head. And really where the School for Good Evil came from and where for this entire larger kind of multiverse universe that we call Ever Never World, what we're building is sort of an alternative to the Disney fairy tale sort of model. Hmm. I completely am on the same wavelength as you in terms of like, I grew up with Disney, but then as you get older, you realize like, oh, not that they got it wrong, but it just, it, it's not what this, the source material was. And there is something more evocative, more more interesting in the original source material. But clearly, you know, Disney has made a massive fortune selling their version of these stories. So it's found an audience. And so I'd love to just hear a little bit more about what excites you about that gray area between quote unquote good and evil. Like I want to hear a little bit more about like why, why that speaks to you when, you know, for so many people, they're just fine with the way Disney has, has told their version of these stories. So what is that for you? Like what excites you about that? For me, what's so interesting about the Disney versions of the stories is that the idea of good and evil doesn't occur to the hero or heroine. They just happen to be virtuous and kind. <laughs> Everything sort of happens and they're oblivious. And they're in these stories and they're almost passive kind of vehicles 
for their story. What I was more concerned about is we live in this world where good and evil are sort of defined for us and thrust upon us. And so to me, that's what we wrestle with every day. Are we doing the right thing? Are we doing the wrong thing? These are the big questions. And I feel like we need fairy tales where the character is actually awake, where the character is actually self-aware enough to be thinking to themselves, what's the right thing? What's the wrong thing? And so to me, to start from, in the School for Good and Evil, to start from a place of a school where you're actually given like a moniker, you're either good or you're evil, and then you have to wrestle with that throughout. So to me, it was more about like, as you're growing up in this world, none of us can identify with Cinderella or Snow White or Ariel. We can't identify with these sort of vacuous people who don't have sort of a clue. They're just sort of like flipping along the surface of a story, whereas I think we have much more awareness. And so Mm. that's what I think was important to me. It was to build characters that had more awareness of what good and evil actually meant. Right. And wrestled with those concepts and ultimately found that Life is found in the in-between. Right. And, you know, in The School for Good and Evil, you kind of even flip that even further by making, you know, the two quote-unquote princesses in the opposite schools. You know, like the the, the quote-unquote good winds up, you know, in the school for villainy and the vice versa. So where did that idea come from? Because I think that it's such an interesting prompt in a way, starting off with these two characters and seeing their journey in these, uh, you know, sort of opposing schools. So, like, take me to the beginning of that idea and how you came about it. It came to me a lot because I was a Madonna fan. And I listened to all Madonna's interviews. And I listened to a lot of Gwyneth Paltrow interviews. And I was thinking to myself, like, both of them are often in their early interviews preaching what they think the right thing to do is, right? And this idea that they have a, an aspiration to a higher consciousness than we have, you know? <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, it's the language of kind of a Disney princess that knows they're a Disney princess. Like, we're used to a Disney princess that is so oblivious to their princesses, right? They just happen to get everything. But then there are the people who know they're meant to be rich and famous. Right. We know they're meant to acquire everything. And I just kept thinking, what a cool character. If you have somebody who believes they're entitled to rule the world, like Madonna did when she came to New York back in the 80s, when she literally walked around and was like, I want to rule the world, right? Right feel like they're destined for greatness. And I thought if you have a girl who knows she's meant to be a fairy tale princess, knows she's meant to get a prince and be rich, and she's better than everybody else in her town, you know, and she's just waiting for her Disney happily ever after, what would that look like? You know, would that look like villainy? (laughs) Would we go along with her? You know, like, I thought it was such a cool character. Would we root for her? Would we hate her? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's where Sophie came from. This idea of a princess getting dropped into the wrong school. And then the other um, element I thought about was that, you know, growing up, the way that girls' friendships are so strong, the way that their friendships are unbreakable. And I thought, you know, if she had a best friend who was pure goodness, but everyone saw her as a villain and she ended up in the wrong school also. Her complete opposite, you know, where she's on the outside, she's a little homely, but on the inside, she's a princess. So it was that yin and yang between the two, one who believes she's entitled for greatness and one who believes she's destined for nothing as best friends. I love that. And like when it comes to, you know, fairy tales and and young adult fantasy, I mean, there's, the parameters are are kind of broad. You can kind of take it in many different directions. And so for you, I mean, how do you, how do you go about building, you know, the school for good and evil? 
what were your parameters? Like, how did you, how did you ideate? How did you edit yourself? Because, you know, you can really stretch it as far or, you know, make it as thin as possible. So what was your process in building out this, this, this series that wound up being, you know, what, six books now? Yeah. (laughs) Like it's. I conceived of it uh, from the very beginning. Uh, You know, you have to go in, especially when you're 20 something with no money and no future. You don't know (laughs) what you're doing. You have to be ambitious. It's the only way it's going to work. And I went in thinking, I would love to do nine divided into three three trilogies. I want it. So that way there could always be a stopping point if I didn't want to do it. The Star Wars approach. I appreciate that. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> Star Wars has a great structure. I thought that the trilogy approach was amazing. So I thought there would be three that would be the school years, three that would be the Camelot years. And then I always toyed with the idea, of, you know, I'm still toying with this maybe someday in the future, doing three as adult novels, mm. as R-rated adult novels when they're grown up. And I just think it would be so cool. Like, because no one's ever done something like that. I co-signed this. Whatever, whatever input, <laughs> whatever sway I have, I want this to happen. I could just see the headlines, Fifty Shades of Tedros or whatever. <laughs> um, so the best creative output comes from boundaries. You have to have very clear limits because otherwise I think there's too much. And luckily, I was living in the shadow of Harry Potter at the time. And I knew in my head, I didn't want it compared to Potter. And that was going to be an almost impossible task because I was writing about a fantasy school. So I thought about what in Potter she either ignored or didn't do particularly well, like what the weak spots were. And the two that I kept thinking about were there's no romance in Potter, oddly. Like there's a little, Mm -hmm. but it isn't real. It isn't that real sort of like what high school romance is. Yeah, you're right. It was just like Harry and Cho. And then they wound up being like kind of like Hermione, yeah, they skirted around it a little bit, yeah. 100%. And um, yeah, because back then there was a rule that in those kind of novels, romance never worked, that boys wouldn't read it. Mm. The other thing was that the Gryffindor kids were always privileged and the Slytherin kids were quite flat, you know? The Slytherin kids were always the butt of the joke. Mm -hmm. And I felt like there was a lane to be had in giving the villains equal time to the heroes and making them just as sexy and interesting. Uh, and at the same time, going intensely on the realism of romance in your teenage years, especially your early teenage years, and the friendships between two girls, you know, which was there's none of that in Potter. It's always about the boys. So I felt like that gave me my lane. And ultimately, I just honed in on those as my strengths. And so I don't worry so much about magic. I don't have these elaborate magical systems because I feel like that was done already. Mm -hmm. You know, I was looking at what had been done. Um, The other thing was that in her world, the adults are quite warm presents. The the adults are there to help you and solve problems for you. And I wanted a world where the adults cannot be trusted under any circumstances and might actually be preying on you. And there's no one to help you other than yourself. So, you know, I wanted a more dangerous dangerous world Hmm. uh, and where the good guy wasn't going to win necessarily. So, you know, there was no Voldemort that was going to be easy to, to everybody unite against, you know? So it gave me, those gave me the things to work around. And ultimately we just never were compared to Potter because the books are so different. Yeah. And I find that interesting because I was going to ask, I mean, because that book came out in 2013 and, yeah. you know, from then all the books you've written in the series, plus, you know, your your latest book, which we're, we're going to get into because it's so good. So from then till now, I mean, how have you grown as a writer? Like, what would you say has been your biggest improvement as a writer? I was always good with prose. I think like 
I could always write short stories. I could always write. That was inborn as a kid. You know, I had the capacity to write a novel at any point in my life. I think with that first book, I just misunderstood the speed mm. of what a book should be. And so I thought it just had to like completely like just be a freight train, you know, <laughs> um, which worked. But then for the subsequent novels, I wanted to settle in and really give you that kind of rich character experience and, and make you believe in the different romantic relationships and all that sort of stuff. I think it was as simple as relaxing and not being mm-hmm. um, so intense on, you know, moving the story so quickly. Right. Somewhere deep inside me, I think I knew it would work for the first one. And then by the time I got to number two, it was like settling into a different pace. Right. I think it just became about trusting my instincts, trusting rhythm, trusting flow, being able to instinctively sense when to speed up, when to slow down. It just became returning to what I love in the in the books that I love, you know. Right. And, you know, I know that you haven't uh, published a uh, quote unquote, you know, adult novel, but I mean, you're, you, you strike me as a very avid reader <laughs> regardless. So, I mean, what is it like writing for your particular audience for a young adult? Like a young adult is technically 13 plus, I think. Yeah. Um. So w- what is that like writing for that specific audience? Because I imagine it is something that is specific because there's sort of embedded rules so to speak but i think yeah, one thing that i love I about break all the time exactly i was about to say because i think that a lot of times authors don't and it's getting better over the years but i think a lot of times authors talk down to kids in a way they feel like they can't handle complex themes and complex emotions when absolutely they can so 100 there's never a time i've given it on something like that i mean i can name you 50 times where i've been told i'm not allowed to do something the first <laughs> book they told me they said, I have a whole scene where a boy and girl room together overnight. They're trapped in a room together. And I was told, you can't have that. You can't have a boy and a girl cohabiting. And so I literally had the boy say to the girl when they're locked in the room, but you can't be in here. You can't have a girl cohabiting with a boy. And I was like, well, there you go. He said it, you know? So like, I'll just face the rule straight up, you know? And I think that was my goal. I think coming in was, I was new to publishing. And like I said, I idolized Madonna growing up. And every time she saw a rule, she ran straight into it. And so anytime there was a rule, I went at it. You can't have romance, I was told. All right, watch me. A second book, I was told I wanted to turn my main character, who's a girl, into a boy for half the novel. Anatomically, everything. <laughs> you know, I just wanted a spell that would turn her into a boy so she could have that experience and et cetera, et cetera. I was told you can't do that. It'll alienate readers if she suddenly turns from a girl to a boy. I'm like, well, let's alienate them, right? <laughs> so it was always like going straight at the problem. And even with this new book, Be Some Beauty, I set out saying, I'm going to write a book that's for adults and kids are going to read it. Mm. And I'm not going to change any of it to make it kid-friendly. Right. It's going to be an adult book and kids are going to be super into it. And again, I was told like, that's never going to happen. And now it's being published in the US as a as a kids book but in the UK it's being published as an adult literary book which is you know what it really is in a lot of ways so i think ultimately a lot of these rules are just old yeah. and so i think coming in with a fresh perspective to the publishing industry means you can disrupt and you can you can be a little bit of a flamethrower and which i do on everything whether it's the marketing side whether it's the sales side whether it's the publicity side i'm always challenging everybody to break the rules a little bit mm. you know because Books are fighting an uphill challenge, you know? Kids have video games, TikTok, YouTube, and everything. we got to make it sexy again 
And the only way we're going to do that is to make it feel renegade. Mm -hmm. And so every one of my books has to feel like it's pushing and it's making kids feel like they're in on a secret. We knew that the first School for Good Evil was going to be a hit when, like I started giving manuscripts of it early to friends of mine who would give it to their daughters and stuff. And it would be passed around their school. Like girls were giving it. It was almost like this underground manuscript. I love that. (laughs) And so we just had this sense of like, it's going to catch on. Um, And so I think that that's what I, I think I want my alternative Disney world to be is I want it to feel like this kind of subversive fairy tale world you go into where everything feels a little dangerous, which is why we called, um, this dangerous tales for mm. the, the subtitle. Right. Oh, you're the alt Walt. Uh, but, and yes. <laughs> oh, that. That's Thank yours. You that. <laughs> <laughs> From one writer to another, that is all yours. More of our throwback episode of Creative Control after the break. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. You know, you mentioned uh, your latest book, Beasts and Beauty, which, you know, it reimagines uh, classic tales like Snow White, Little Red Riding Hood, Rumpelstiltskin, and many more. And so, you know, I think it's a pretty common premise at this point to take take a classic and kind of spin it and give it, you know, the fresh coat of paint. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your your way in, because as you mentioned that this, you really went into it wanting to make this for adults, but kids would read it as well. So take me through a couple, some of these stories and really kind of like illustrate that point, because I, I've, I've read it and it's, yeah, it's, it's on the money. Like these are definitely for adults, but <laughs> but they work. I mean, there's nothing insanely graphic that would, you know, no. be like a red flag for kids. It's just, it's it's dark, like Grimm's. <laughs> like, so it's like... I think what, because I studied fairy tales so heavily in college, you know, that was really my major in a lot of ways. I was an English major, but I was focusing on fairy tales. And I studied with Maria Tatar, who was like the great fairy tale kind of queen of scholarship. And what she always used to say, you know, when we were in classes that these were stories told to everybody as kind of a survival guide to life. And they had to be edgy. They had to make adults feel that kind of jolt of a thrill of real experience. And at the same time, they had to to make kids sit up a little bit and Mm -hmm. be like, whoa, like the world is a little dangerous, right? And so I think what we end up doing with a lot of these stories is, you know, we'll sort of retell them, but we don't actually go to the heart and understand what what were they about in the first place? Why were they there? And I think, luckily, I have the history of having researched these stories so deeply, so I know all the versions, I know where they started, I know why they were told. And also, the fact that these stories, even like, we can say they're dead, right? We can say, oh, no one needs to hear Snow White again, no one needs to hear Cinderella again, because they're cliched and hackneyed, and we should just bury them. But if you look at history for thousands of years, on every continent independently, a Snow White story pops up, a Cinderella story pops up, a Red Riding Hood story pops up. There's so many different versions of these tales through time because they're in our DNA. These stories are essential and there's nothing we can do to stop that. So we have to make them work because otherwise we're going to stick to these stories that don't matter. And so that was sort of my founding premise. And I thought, I'm just going to go back and in an immense act of hubris and ambition, I'm going to pretend I am the original writer of these tales, taking them down from the oral tradition with a crystal ball and I can see the future. 
Mm-hmm. So what do I want the generations to learn? Let's redo them. You know, let's make them work for today's world. And so it was a lofty ambition, but I think I needed that in order to not be precious about the stories and to start from the seat of what they actually were about. You know, Sleeping Beauty, for instance, the original Grimm Sleeping Beauty is about the terror of a princess waking up pregnant and not knowing how she's pregnant. And that to me, that seed of the feeling, right? Which of course the Disney version has nothing to do with. I mean, they wouldn't. Are you kidding me? I think Aurora in that movie says like 16 words. I was like, how do I get that feeling? Because that's an important feeling. So, how do you get that feeling and present that in a new fairy tale for everybody? And so, I started with this idea of a prince um, waking up every day and in the night, someone's been feeding on his blood and he knows it's happening and he can feel it, but he can't explain it mm-hmm. to anybody else. So, it was about taking each story and finding the the seed of it, like Red Riding Hood, you know, the original Red Riding Hood is about that girl and the wolf and the sort of dance between them. And, you know, the idea of who's predator and who's prey. And I thought, you know, in our world specifically, there's so many ways about that, but that feeling can be captured in a town where every year on the first day of spring, the wolves surrounding the town howl, meaning that the town has to send in their most beautiful girl to be sacrificed and eaten by the wolves. And in return, the wolves won't kill everybody else. And the town, instead of fighting this or, or taking on the wolves, goes along with it. And every year, they just take the prettiest girl, throw her into the forest, and let her die, right, in order to save themselves. And I'm like, that is 2021. So I felt like it was, it was taking the seed of the original stories and the feeling and then making a new story. Right. So between the school for good and evil and, you know, Beast and Beauty, I mean, you're really carving out a specific lane for yourself and you're deepening that association <laughs> with your name and fairy tales and, and, and you know, young adult fantasy. And is, is that intentional? I mean, is that something that you want for yourself or, or do, you, do you worry at all that you are kind of pigeonholing yourself in a way? Because I th- there, like you said, there's. I know you mentioned like kind of making an R-rated version of the school for good and evil. Yes, yes, yes. I think what I would like to do is, you know, Ever Never World, I think, will be the thing that I sort of give my life to in terms of building out new universes, new fairy tale universes. But I want the option of Ever Never World not just being for kids. You know what I mean? I want the option of, of things within it. If we're going to do Alt-Walt, let's do Alt-Walt. <laughs> there you yeah, go. You know, right? <laughs> let's have the R-rated School for Good and Evil. Let's do, you know, an intense fantasy series. Like, you know, when you think of Marvel... That isn't just for kids. It's it's for everybody. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to build something that is more inclusive and doesn't have that kind of... I want it for everybody. I want it for all ages. I want it for you know all diverse audiences. I want to be able to have representation of everybody from the start. Like I just... I want to redo how we think about fairy tale storytelling. That's not to say that everything I'm going to do is going to be based in fairy tales. Uh, I would be happy to invent some new fantasy worlds and things like that. So... I think of it less as only fairy tales and more as Ever Never World is just kind of where I put my fantasies. Mm, right. And so at this point in your career, I mean, this is something I always love asking at the end of, of these conversations, because just taking into consideration all that we've talked about, how have you come to define creativity? Creativity to me is, can you find the story that only you can tell? You know, mm-hmm. can you find the story that is only yours to tell? And if anybody else can do it, then either you need to let it go or you need to make it more you, mm-hmm. you know? And I'm always asking that before I start 
any project. Can anyone else do this? And sometimes I'll just talk about a story for a year to everybody, hoping someone else will do it. Hoping someone else will be like, <laughs> oh, that's great. I wish I had done that. And I'd be like, you should. <laughs> I just feel like I'll give it away, you know, waiting for someone to do it until it keeps kicking at me and keeps kicking at me year after year after year. I have to live with an idea for a few years before I do it. But there comes a day where it's like, oh no, this one's yours. I think that to me is the key is making sure that the story is yours to tell. And everything in my life is about once I have that story, you know, like respecting it and respecting the fact it needs to be told and then really structuring my life around surrendering to it Mm. and bringing it to life in a way that I'll be proud of once it's done. Because once that book comes out, it is out. And once that movie comes out, it's out forever. And so I don't cut corners. I'll do everything I can to make sure it's of the quality where I can sleep at night. Yeah. I love that. I love that. So thank you so much. This was wonderful. Oh, my pleasure. This was super fun. That's going to do it for this throwback episode of Creative Control. Make sure you subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts so you're in the loop when our new season drops in the fall. See you then.